Hey there, I'm Zoltan Fetcho, producer of the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. On this special episode, recorded live on Wurundjeri Country, Olivia Cummings is joined by Erica Gerards. With over a decade of experience in the beauty industry, Erica has co-founded several international beauty brands. Erica is a writer, podcast host, and founder of her current makeup and beauty brand, Fluff. Olivia and Erica discuss how businesses can help to create a better future and what it takes to build a purpose-driven brand. On a personal note, I wanted to dedicate this night to my dad, Chris, who has had a battle with leukaemia for the last four years. Um, and we don't have very long left. So he's in hospital tonight watching on the live. Hi, Dad. Um, everyone say, hi, Chris. No, just kidding. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that because as I was driving here tonight, I thought, how can I do a podcast about um, authenticity and not acknowledge this big chapter in my very tiny little life on planet Earth? Um, I can't look at my friends. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to be extremely transparent because we're here to talk about transparency and I don't think you can be um, part of a society or a brand and give your message out to the world and not be completely yourself. So I'm just going to be completely myself tonight. Um, so welcome, Erica. Welcome, everyone. Um, there's a lot of familiar faces for me, including my uncle and cousin and the CV team down the back. Um, love you guys. And then Erica, a long time friend of mine. It's been about, I don't actually know. I don't know either. Eight, long enough, maybe eight, eight years. Eight plus years. I feel like COVID years, you gain like five or something. Like, I feel like we're up to 15 now because we survived that together. So I wanted to talk about my relationship with Erica first and foremost, because when I think of like friendship, I think in the last couple of years, friendship became a lot more important to me um, personally, like about being a good friend, but also receiving friendship. And Erica is one of those people I would always go to. Um, I haven't actually told her what I'm going to say about her tonight, so <laughs> she's in for a surprise. So I wanted to just say that Erica is one of those inspirations that inspires me to be more boldly myself. We can hold eye contact or you can look down, it's fine. <laughs> um, so you definitely inspire me to be more authentically myself. I always have like the little soft airy voice in the back of my mind when I think like, what would Erica say if I told her this conundrum, whether or not it's business or personal or family or whatever. And I just feel like Erica's always one of those people who will say, do what you feel is right or like follow your gut or she's never like, she, I'll never get a conventional airy answer. Uh, like a conventional answer, I mean, I'll get an airy answer, which is to be yourself. So Erica and I met kind of by stalking each other on the internet and having one mutual friend um, who then connected us, I believe. Um, and then we just sort of forced each other to become friends. And then because we're both founders, obviously, we were really inspired to talk about our business issues and like how that coincides with our personal lives. Um, and yeah, it's just been great. So I feel like every time we talk publicly like this or even just at 8 a.m. coffees and Collingwood before yoga, we sort of talk about what we're gonna talk about tonight anyway. So we're just doing a little bit more of a structured version of that um, in hopes, in the hope that it will be helpful for you guys. So I think Erica and I sort of see our brands as like 
we're co-dreaming this like better version of the world and like regardless of what your product is I think your product is kind of like a vehicle um, or service or whatever you offer but that the emotion that you want to put out into the world is as important as the product um, so yeah so I wanted to ask Ari a few questions just like about the beginnings of her and like her inquiry into the world and the Erica that's out there asking lots of questions and um, shining a torch on little dark spots and um, raising sort of interesting topics of discussion. Um, so yeah, so I just wanted to ask Erica one question before we start, which is like where your general life curiosity springs from. Big question to start with. Yes, I'll try to give you a short answer. Um, I It's funny because I'm in the beauty industry Livers in the jewellery industry, we have lots of crossovers, even though you could consider them worlds apart. But I really struggle with telling people that I'm a beauty founder. It doesn't connect with me at all. I'm not obsessed with makeup or skincare. I'm quite anti-beauty in a lot of ways. But I am obsessed with people and I am obsessed with why we consume the things we consume, whether that's content, whether that's products, whether that's people. And I really always want to understand that. And I think that's my insatiable curiosity. It's been like that ever since I was young and probably the product of my parents and how they raised me and how they encouraged this idea of curiosity and meeting new people and talking to people. Also, storytelling has been like a huge element of my life. I've always been obsessed with books and storytelling and immersing myself in another world, whether that's because I was trying to escape the world I was in at one certain point in time or whether I just wanted to imagine alternative worlds. And I think that curiosity plays out in the various businesses that I've had over the last 15 years and I laugh being able to say I've been in you know the beauty industry for a decade or working for 15 years um, but at the same time I also feel um, in the infancy of my career and I'm so excited to do many different ventures and fluff is just one thing that I'm doing right now but I hope that I'm doing a bunch of different stuff in 10 years and I hope that or I know that Olivia will be there along the way um, having conversations with me and pushing me where I need to be pushed. Great <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I feel like that was almost as good as a pre-rehearsed answer. Great. So well done. Um, I've so, talked before. Yeah. <laughs> so we also want to break, so we kind of want to structure this um, to a degree so that's not just us rambling. Um, and we've kind of touched on five topics. Do you want to? Yeah. So obviously the theme is from launch to legacy and we thought it might be nice to give you some context as to what the hell that means. Um, we want to really discuss this definition of a legacy brand. We want to work through the stages of a business or a brand. So from launch, when you're essentially creating, to building, to surviving, which most businesses have to do at some point, to scaling then to either thriving or dying, which I think is the reality that a lot of people don't talk about, that so many businesses do fail and do die. We often glamorise the unicorns of the world, the businesses that are huge successes, without talking about the businesses that close. Um, or we talk about the businesses that close as failures, as opposed to just attempts at putting something out there for a short period of time that then 
doesn't need to be in the world any longer. Um, once we talk about that, we want to talk about um, hopefully the idea of if a brand or a company can influence people um, and the impact of influence or how people view influence as a responsibility as a founder or as a company. And then we kind of takes us into this idea of the role of brands today versus what it maybe was 20, 30, 50 years ago, but also the role of consumers today, because I think that's, well, that's a debate I'm really passionate about. People are always saying, you know, it's the publisher's responsibility or it's the brand's responsibility, but I think it has to come from both sides. We need to talk about how consumers can come to the table and how they can work with brands and how they perhaps need to be more forgiving or more patient with brands. And that's not to say they can't have expectations because that's so important, but we need to meet halfway. Um, and then finally, we kind of want to tie it up by talking about what our definitions of success are, personally and professionally. And they have changed over the years, and particularly as Liv touched on, as we go through personal experiences, it affects our professional experiences. And it really, I think the last couple of years, things have come into perspective for us and for each of you, I'm sure, in your own journey. So that's how we're kind of going to bring it all together and then we'll have some questions at the end say whatever you want I love being challenged we're open books yeah we should also say that everything we're talking about tonight is based on our personal experiences so there's no formula it's not the rule yeah, yeah. Um, so I was going to just quickly start with this excerpt of this Business of Fashion article that I read recently. Um, it's one of the like few publications that I think is talking about interesting stuff across businesses and startups. And I thought it was quite relevant to this convo. So it's specifically about the beauty industry, but I think it can be applied to almost any industry, fashion, hospitality, FMCG, etc. So it's a conversation between two beauty writers and it goes something like this. We were discussing the usual industry going ons, companies blatantly copying one another's designs and problematic influencer founded lines amongst them. We came to a shared conclusion. No beauty brand is doing anything really good. Everything feels and looks the same. Products are pitched as clean, the first of its kind or science backed and the number of celebrities shilling skincare or makeup has diluted the power of a startup founder. Where is the next Glossier or Fenty? To be clear, I don't mean who will copy Glossier's social media first approach or launch with a wide foundation range. I'm looking for the company that will change the conversation and our relationship with beauty so profoundly that it will breed a new generation of copycats. So for me, that final sentence is what I think about when I think about legacy. And it brings me to my first question for Olivia, is I'm really curious about who you think is a legacy brand, or perhaps you can give examples within your industry, and what you think they have in common outside of just longevity in the space. And then my second question is, do you think you can plan to have a legacy, or is this just something that happens organically over time? So it's, it kind of brings me to, like, did CB start with a plan? And 11 years in to your business journey, what are your goals today? Okay, so it's a three-part question. Yes. Um, okay, so first of all, I think, I think for me the definition of legacy would be... Um, well, I think there's two definitions. I think there's the classic, like, 80s version, which is, like, Chanel, 
Celine, all those brands, I think they're legacy collections because of the um, very long reputation that they have and that they've created for themselves, but also the sort of um, almost elitism, I think, would be associated with a legacy brand. They don't necessarily do much outside of what they do, so I think they're kind of a classic example of a successful brand. Generally, haute couture, they have... Um, they cover a number of different industries, which I think is also interesting because we sort of don't. We sort of stick to one category. That, that would be what comes to mind when I think of a legacy brand. When I think of a legacy brand today, I think it's different. I think it's about your emotional connection to them a little bit more and like their engagement with the outside world. So I think it depends from what perspective you're looking at it. I think for me personally, like I get completely like enamored by like like I have Chanel shoes or like whatever, like Celine shoes or whatever. But um, so that's like a sort of a more lofty, I think, idea of what it is to buy into a brand. And then there's the small brands, the smaller brands um, that have more of a capacity to storytell and engage socially that I think are creating a legacy that has more of a um, heart connection. And I think that's what people are looking for these days. I think we don't really need any more enormous brands that like crush down the small people. I think we already know what that does um, from a social perspective, but also environmentally. So I think those brands are kind of, um, I think they'll always be a market for like the big French or like, you know, American or whatever um, fashion houses or just big, big brands. But I think there is um, a slight shift towards the more um, engaged brand now. And I think people want to know more about the conception of the product through to how it's produced and how the people are treated. So I think it kind of, you can break it into two categories. I think maybe if a brand like Chanel launched now, there'd be more competition. Um, and I think there would be also more questioning from the consumer. I think this questioning that we do as consumers is sort of recent, um, which is sort of interesting because we all want a high quality product like a Chanel bag. I also don't really know if they're made better than like an average handbag company or if it's just the fact that it has the Chanel logo on it that makes you want to buy it. So I couldn't say. Um, don't know much about that level of jewellery either. Generally when I look at like Gucci jewellery, I'm kind of like, I can't believe they're charging that much for it. But um, it, again, it's the logo. So I think... In terms, okay, so now I'm at to part three of your question, which is how Cleopatra's wing started, and it was completely like unconventional. Um, it was, I think, 11 years ago, or 12 almost. Yeah, I was about 22, and I'm 34 now, so 12 almost. Um, basically, it was on off. Um, I was living in Paris for six years. I'm trying to like think how I can tell you guys this in a concise way. Um, where I did my masters, I was working in a branding and strategic planning agency. And I was like, this is nice, very um, misogynistic, but nice. And I was doing a um, bilingual job, so I was speaking French and English, and I was like, I'm not being paid enough for this. So then I had an existential crisis, went to Istanbul, left my ex of the time, and just went there for two weeks and started meeting dudes in the Grand Bazaar. Um, <laughs> and I was like, hi, I'm Olivia from Australia. They're just like, what are you doing here? Um, and then I just kept going back and forth with... <laughs> with um, vintage jewellery that I was selling on Etsy because I was like, this is easy, I can make money um, and learn about jewellery. And then I started making more than I was on my 
French salary. I was like, this is kind of shady, but also really exciting. So I, then I started going back and forth a lot, um, sourcing a lot of jewellery, selling it. Made more than my salary. And I was like, okay, bye, nine to five, bye. And then I left Paris, packed up my life, went to Istanbul with a suitcase and like 300 euros or something terrible. And... Um, set up there. So the brand started in a really unconventional way and I had absolutely zero business plan from both a design perspective and financial perspective. Like I had no money and it was hand to mouth for like three years. Then I learned Turkish and started like getting more in with the artisans on a more technical sense. I was learning more of the actual skills I needed to build collections and then it snowballed and then four years later I was... Um, building websites and things like that. And then I moved to Italy to do fine production in Florence, but I lived in Naples. And so I think basically to summarise, I think if you went to, well, if you went to my business school that I did my master's at in Paris, I would say that's the worst idea, like all of what I've just said to you, because it's so kind of reckless. But, and I had no money and no, I knew no one in Istanbul in the start. So obviously if you told my story to a, you know, a business coach, they'd be like, no, that's not how you start a business. And my dad was always saying like, no business is a business without the numbers. So I was like, okay. So then we got an accountant, but basically in retrospect, <laughs> what I'm trying to say to you guys is there's no formula. So I think, and at the time I wasn't like, I'm going to make an awesome jewelry brand and like have 15 staff and we'll have a building in Collingwood. Like I didn't have you know, I hadn't, like, thought that far ahead at all. I was really, like, month, you know, month to month kind of going to Paris to do trunk shows in London. But and I also never thought I would be back in Australia. So, like, the moral of the story is, like, just, I don't know, when people tell you your idea is a bit nuts, like, I feel like, yeah, kind of a lot of good ideas are really nuts. And um, I don't think you can ever really pre-organise anything based on a formula. So, because in retrospect, like, yeah, what I did was kind of crazy. Like, I had no help either. So I was doing literally everything from production to shipping to customer care to, like, sending, like, my taxes to the Australian tax office. So, yeah, I just think basically, like, legacy is the accumulation of values that kind of push your brand forward. And I think like the values that have grown from Cleopatra's bling were not necessarily my intention in the beginning. My intention was to like build a beautiful product, essentially jewelry I wanted to wear that I couldn't find, but also to work with people who could teach me about their lives. I worked with the most exciting, inspiring guys in Istanbul. They opened their workshops to me. Like they had nothing to gain by doing that apart from like sitting with me. And I was mute most of the time because I was not even able to speak Turkish for the first year or so um and yeah I think like the through exploration and not being too strict about the start of the 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 whole project if I can call it that it's more than a business because at that time it was really my personal project um that they're the things that sort of molded me into understanding what my my ethos of the brand was so to answer your question in like a 20-minute version, um, we, I don't think we can really um, plan legacy. Mm. That's the end. <laughs> You're talking faster than you think, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're moving through. I think it's interesting because when I think about your brand, it truly is a brand that I think could be around for 
10, 20, 30 years, I think it could outlive you. And I'm not saying that Inshallah. because you are yeah. my friend and I say that about very few brands. Um, that authenticity or that value system that you bring is something I don't think can be faked and I just think it's something that can't be strategized in a boardroom meeting. It's so integral to you. It's like it's so intuitive and it's what I have always watched in awe and it's what I feel like is lacking from so many industries. You just said awe? Oh, okay, I mean, that's oh. like an interest. I just want to like interject and just give you guys a little reference because I was started reading this book by this guy. Wait, I've got to read this. Down is the tangent that this I said. This is the tangent that I said. Like, we're going to go on tangents. These so I'm are my try notes. And... <laughs> They're so scribbly. Anyway, so Dacher Keltner, um, D A C H E R K E L T N E R, um, did a whole book on the study of awe. And it's actually awesome. Sorry, I have to. Um, because he talks about the science of emotions and I feel like that has not been touched on or taken seriously but he talks about the fact that awe is such a like immune boosting life-giving emotion that it that it can like transform your life. So he's talking about awe seeking. He's like I just go out and seek awe and I was like okay I'm gonna do that. Um, but to some like to go back to what Erica was saying is like I think if you're working however many hours you work, like I work a lot of hours, but if you're working as many hours as I do, like you would hope that you've got awe at work because you spend more time with your colleagues than you do with your um, like family, literally. Um, just making eye contact with Karen because we just spent so much time together. Um, yeah, and I think like that's such an important thing for me, like in, in the workplace, not only the way you communicate to your clients or customers or the people who follow you on Instagram, like if you don't feel awe with the people you spend your days with at work, like I don't think the message of the actual product really matters. Like it's about the A to Z, which is like the minute I get to work, like I'm excited to see my colleagues. Um, so, you know, I'm excited to get on a Zoom and see um, the faces of our colleagues overseas in um, Europe and Turkey. So, yeah, that's my comment on awe you can go yeah I think the awe is definitely it's present and it's something I witness from you all the time like you love your team you are sending out friendship text threads photos of your jewelry every day and I'm like oh mate aren't you sick of your own stuff but you are not no. you love it and I love that you love it and both, this is where our businesses are really different, but I love that we can come together and have these conversations. Whereas mm. I might not get off on the next makeup compact that I've made, but Liv like just loves every single ring she designs. And I think mm. again, that is what people see and that you are constantly creating and constantly pushing out SKUs, not in pursuit of profit, but in pursuit of creating. And it's that curiosity that you're just putting out there. I think also just touching on the thing about loving my jewellery, which I do, but I think the reason for that is because it's such a long process from the wax, the, the wax form mould that I make through the various artisans we work with through to, like, selling. So it's, like, after me, it's, it gets worked on by, like, ten artisans that we personally know. So it's such a nice, slow development of a product. So by the time we get it back, we're like, we know which guy in the Grand Bazaar set that stone and we've been to his workshop. Mm. Um... And he follows me on Instagram and sends me, like, you know, memes and stuff. So it's like we, yeah, there's a nice, like, <laughs> there's a nice um, team spirit behind yeah. every single piece of jewellery. So I think that 
gives everyone like a, a feeling of pride when we get our DHL packages from Istanbul or Florence. Everyone's like ripping them open to see the ring they've been working on for commission. Mm. So yeah, that was just the context for that. I think what I love about you is that you had no plan. When we met like eight years ago, you were like, yeah, I'm kind of doing this jewellery and you gave me some. And I was like, what are you working towards? And you were like, I'm just creating. And I loved that. And I, the way I kind of compare it or bring it back to the beauty industry or when I think about legacy is the because I, I really wonder if legacy is a thing anymore, if it can continue. So in beauty, you have your obvious legacy brands, Estee Lauder, which was founded in 1946. You have L'Oreal, you have Clinique in 1968. And then more recently, I think about Aesop, which is actually still 35 years old. Um, or even a, like a long stint. Yeah, it's a stint, but it's still kind of young. Um, and then, or you have the Body Shop in 1976. So these are brands that I think, even if they don't have as much relevance, particularly with younger consumers, they're still around, they're still going. My question is like, what beauty brands or fashion brands or jewellery brands have been founded in the last 10 years that we think will be here in 50 years? I can't even say Fluff will be around in 20, 30 years. I don't know that. Um, and I, like, I wonder, like, will Off-White in fashion be relevant or around in 50 years? Are the brands that we are talking about and coveting now, what relevance do they have? And then a question of like, do they need to have relevance? Is legacy a thing anymore? Will we see another Coca-Cola big parent company? Or is it just going to be small indie brands that are around for maybe five years and then they choose to close? And is that okay? So these are kind of the questions that keep me up at night when I feel sometimes compelled that I have to create something that outlives me. And then I think maybe I just need to create something that is here for a good time and not a long time. And if it impacts a close circle of, um, or a community for a couple of years and then I choose to move on, maybe that's okay. Um, so that's one thought that I have. So to give like, you kind is of... Is that a question? <laughs> just a... Because um, when I think about where Fluff is at, we're five years in and it's felt long and brutal sometimes and obviously three of those years were sort of COVID. Um, but, you know, we're five years old. It's like if that that's a child just about to go to school, right? It's only just maybe figuring out this is what I want to be or this is what I want to do or this is who I am. And it needs support and it is learning and it is figuring stuff out. When I started Fluff, like I had a big vision. I really wanted it to be the next Glossier in Australia. I was like, this is what I'm going to create. I was coming off the back of another skincare brand that had done really well in three to five years. And I felt like I knew what the formula was. And little did I sort of know that my previous brand was really the exception, but it wasn't the rule. And the rule is that businesses can be really long and hard and that a lot of businesses fail. And so in the last five years, it's really been about me reconciling that first ambition for fluff versus the person that I am five years in, what I've been going through personally, the the state of the industry and how that's changed. And what I actually think that I want to leave as some kind of legacy, whether that's a small one or a really large one. So... That's my statement about where I'm at. Right. <laughs> well, you said a few you points. Questions well, on that? No questions. I just wanted to speak to what you said about um, the five-year-old child. And yeah. it kind of reminds me sometimes where I think 
my brand is like, well, number one, it's my first child. And then it's my standard poodle, Alfonso. Um, but number, my first child, Cleopatra's Bling, really has been like accompanying me through, like I couldn't, I don't know, I couldn't even say, I don't want to sound cliche and say good and bad times, but really is that. Like the brand has been my life boat, but also my, literally the bane of my existence at points in my life. Um, and so I think it's good that you treat a business like a living, breathing entity. It's truly a child. It's the best it's, and worst thing that all happened to yeah. you. Yeah. Like waking up at 3am to be like, where's that faceted emerald for that custom order? Like, or then just like also having like the complete freedom to do what I want essentially and like hire the people I want, work with the people I want. But I think, yeah, it is, it is interesting to think of a business like, because we kind of like start a business and then we have expectations of the stages of like one year, two years, three years, it never goes to plan. But I think if you treat the entity, which is your business as with compassion and yourself with compassion as well, I think it just makes things so much easier. Like, I think having a brand or a business is a real test of control because, and just like having a child, you might want it to grow up to be a doctor and make a shitload of money and then it tells you it wants to be an artist and, you know, live the bohemian life and you're like, oh, how do I support this child in pursuing its dreams? And that's been my challenge, right? Like I wanted to build a brand that was doing X amount of dollars and then this brand sort of told me over the last couple of years, no, 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 we're going to go slower. That is, if you want to, if your strategy in terms of marketing and how you want to approach it is X, then you are building a brand that is Y. And that was a big thing for me to really learn and grapple with. And what I'm realising is it will continue to be that way. And just like a child, I've sort of gotten to this point where I realise that, again, it needs that support and help and I am not a professional or a teacher. Like, I'm a great mother. I've raised this cute little five-year-old brand and now I'm like, I need someone else to come in and help. Not everyone does. Some founders really move quite easily into a CEO role. I think at some point as a founder, you have to let go of that ambition if it's not serving you and, and realise when you can bring on people who are going to take that brand to where it needs to be. And that could mean stepping out of a company at five years, at 10 years in. Um, and we see a lot of brands doing that because their businesses become bigger than them. And I think that's a kind of interesting thing I've been discussing. At what point would I happily step back from fluff and let someone else take it to the next level? Because ultimately my goal has become that I do want the world to experience fluff and that I want our message to reach as many people as it can. So if someone can support me in doing that, I will let them, I will partner with them. Cool. So yeah, I guess you're almost saying that we have to be a little bit countercultural and um, building a brand because I feel like we're kind of indoctrinated to do that like Silicon Valley thing when you start a, a brand and then you're like, okay, now you have to do ads and then you have to do this and that and this and that. You're constantly being like, pushed down this path of fast growth and kind of like adrenaline all the time. And I think if you sort of make decisions a little bit more slowly, um, you do realise that you have a lot more space than you thought. But I think the model now is like, have an idea, like put it on the market and then scale. And that's kind of like because press we the have, button and then yeah, you'll have like $50 million. We have glorified these brands that have scaled in three to five years. But again, there's the exception. And I think we're all chasing that. And we are, so we are prioritizing P&Ls and we are prioritizing growth at all costs. And we are 
forsaking the things like really what we care about and the message that we're trying to put out to consumers because it's all about hitting those budgets. It's all about growing by X percent each year. And when I was chasing that with Fluff, it was probably the most stressed and unhappy I've been. And then when we fully pivoted as a result of basically asking ourselves, well, do we just walk away from this? The pivoting has resulted in so much more um, internal like happiness within the team, um, more clarity around our vision and in turn like more demand for the brand and the product, both from consumers and then uh, retailers on a global scale and with investors, which is just hilarious because I feel like I wasted five years building the company in one direction when I should have started in another way. Mm. But again, it's all part of the learning. But in that case, it was like a self-correction, which was like that you're just affirming essentially the fact that we can self-correct and have compassion for ourselves. But also I feel like in terms of our customers, like if you have negative feedback, I think it's so easy to get kind of in a tiff with them or just like take it really personally, especially in Australia because people take things really personally. Um, but I think it's nice to think... Um, I am a like an entity just like my business that's allowed to make mistakes and I'm allowed to like grow from them. And I don't think cancel, cult cancel culture is particularly helpful. I mean, I think in some cases definitely yes. But I think in terms of like if I were to make a mistake with like packaging, for example, and it wasn't as sustainable as I thought and I got called out on it or whatever, that's just the first example that came to my mind, um, I feel like in those cases the brand, the, like there needs to be some leeway for people to make mistakes um, and then you need to give yourself leeway to pivot, have low cash flow one month and be like, oh my God, what am I doing? And then to recalibrate and like move in another direction because I think if we're really rigid and hard on ourselves, um, it's, you just don't get anywhere. And I think that's why, like, in my case now, we have a, a way bigger team. So all the perspective of all the new people and, like, the more veteran members of the of Cleopatra's wing of, like, five and six years, like, I want all of their opinions all the time because it's like I don't know everything and that's such a burden to think that I do, let alone take that on. So it's just, yeah, I think it's great that you're saying that you had that pivot and it's been um, so beneficial because it just shows exactly what we're trying to say, which is there's no formula and you have to be a little bit instinctive as well mm. in well, running I business. Because we've also glamorised the all-knowing founder and it's, it's just... really exhausting. It's crazy. Yeah. I am yet to meet a founder who is both creative and analytical and cares about the accounts or, you know, it's, it's just... It's tricky. Um, and I think that... It's really 80s kind of... <laughs> as well you know like walk in in a power suit and everyone's scared of you it's like no one needs that like we want to be friends you know you want to like I want to learn from my younger staff they're way better at social media and like digital and so much stuff than me I'm like whoa okay I thought I was good at Instagram but like you guys are something else and just like their take on the world as well um not that we have like an ageist kind of workplace but it's just interesting to see everyone's expertise based on their experience age you know generation and it takes so much pressure off me because they come up with ideas that I would have to literally read about to come up with. Well, where, because I, when I think about trying to tie this back to this idea of legacy, when I think about some of the brands that we've both touched on and the research or the podcasts or the books I've read around them, they all seem to start from this one founder who had this passion or this idea that they wanted to share. And there wasn't this huge business plan around how they were going to scale and in what time. 
And yet those are the ones that we're still talking about and reading about and consuming. And so that's what I sort of connect with about what you were doing and the more successful brand that I had started with that passion as well and just that curiosity and that desire to create. And then when I tried to control all the variables with my second brand, that's when it was actually harder for me. And I was it was so much more rigid and I wasn't seeing that result. And I guess what I have learned was that consumers probably could feel that, that trying to control and um, create a brand within a certain time mm. frame, as opposed to just seeing where the business would go or seeing where the industry was going and seeing what consumers wanted. Yeah, also because we're kind of indoctrinated from like high school when you're meant to choose your, like what you're good at and then study it and then go to uni and so you're never really taught that, like, you're going to fall... Like, I literally didn't study jewellery in an institution. I just learnt with men in Istanbul. But I also went down that path of, like, OK, I'm going to study, like, marketing and um, languages. And then I found the job in marketing and used my languages. And then I was like, this is really kind of boring. But it's, it felt, like, logical. But then when I went literally bananas and went to Istanbul I feel like that's when I was like oh my gosh like all these shackles I'd put on myself to be like reasonable and like make sure that you know everything I did made sense and it was sort of like the next logical step so I can explain that my job comes straight off the bat of my master's in Paris whatever um, um so I think what I'm trying to say is like we're, in, we're pushed down this capitalistic very I don't know, almost like where it's like neoliberalism where it's just like the I, me, I'm going to hustle, I'm going to make it. And then I think what I've realised is like the more you lean into your community and the people around you and you make your business about everyone, including like literally the people who receive the product from the, you know, the artisans we work with, it's about everyone. That has made me feel like a lot more purposeful um, and also it just creates a sense of community that I don't think like you can really undermine. So, yeah. I can't and remember how I got here. <laughs> Do you think, Trying though, that – so outside of then just, like, creation and connection mm. – do you feel like you have a role as a founder or as a company now with a following? Yeah. Because this is, I think, the big question that like also goes around. Yeah, the brands have more of a responsibility outside of just production. Oh, yeah. And I think Mets, I think if I think about growing up in, when did we grow up? The 90s. Um, going to an all-girls school, like, it was so traumatising, like, the way that fashion was pushed onto us, like, body image, everything. Like, it wasn't at all, like, supportive, I, th I would say. Like, I don't know if it was the same for you. Definitely. Um, so I feel like now, because brands are taking more responsibility about, you know, the way they talk to their audiences, but probably also within their teams, there's a trickle-down effect. So people, I feel, are a lot more comfortable expressing themselves. I think I had to break that in myself, living overseas and just being like, okay, you need to like forget traumatising girls' schools in Melbourne. Um, but also I think just the way that a brand messages is a reflection of the team. So I don't think you can like be a toxic workplace and have a really like genuine message like we always think about our messaging and we talk about it but I think it's literally a natural um progression of what Cleopatra's bling is so it's not contrived and we're not scrambling to like find words you know to make people feel comfortable um or even the way that we describe the products and the mythology and the storytelling around them is 
completely genuine because that's how we design everything and that's how we do the art direction and the creative direction. So I think, um, I don't want to say we're lucky because it was like purposeful, but it wasn't strategically um, premeditated. We weren't like, oh, we're going to do this because that will sell. Like it just became a natural flow on effect of me going to Istanbul, starting the brand there. But I do still feel responsible about the way that we message and I think it's really important also to be slightly... Um, I don't want to say political, but I think it's... I don't want to be apolitical. Like, I think it's important for us to raise topics that are important, especially, like, having lived in countries that are affected by um, terrible situations, like in Turkey, for example. Um, since I lived there for so long and know the Turkish people really well, I feel like kind of an allegiance with them. And I feel like it would be... Um, disingenuous if I just sat here and was like, these are made in Turkey, but then didn't talk about, you know, things that affect that country. And so I think that's why we do a lot of fundraising. We do the podcast because we talk to people about their perspective um, because I think with an audience like we have, which is 100,000 or something just on Instagram, I feel like, you know, people are looking for more than just a product and we love storytelling. So it's just like goes... I like that your storytelling feels genuine and I often, like my predicament at times is like what is a genuine story that Fluff can tell or I remember seeing um, this great meme about this comedian just having, it's Bo Burnham and on his COVID lockdown series that he did and he's like, why the fuck is my cereal box telling me how to vote? And it's this question that comes up that it's like, are brands actually taking it too far? Like at some point, you know, does Kellogg's need to weigh in on oh, yeah. politics? And I actually think that's a really fair point. And I think sometimes brands take it too far in feeling like they have to have these conversations, which they potentially have no experience um, or critical evaluation about. And that's something I've been weighing in a lot in the last sort of year or two is like, what is what is relevant to Fluff? What experience do I have that I can bring to conversations with our consumers as opposed to just having an opinion for the sake of it? Like I try and connect with our audience about the things we really care about, which I had to ask myself, like, what do we care about as a company? And our biggest thing is really just about people's relationships to beauty and I guess fostering or encouraging an internal discussion around where your idea of beauty comes from and so we want that to manifest in people writing about it in people having conversations on our podcast about people posting about that on Instagram about about our products more being like a badge of honor or this representation of your values and if you buy fluff or you wear fluff it's because you care about the same things that we do. And that was kind of cool for me because at a point where I was like, am I just making makeup? Am I just contributing noise to, to this like messy world? It gave me a little bit more meaning and it gave myself permission to be like, I can exist as a business that isn't necessarily saving the world, but perhaps it's saving one person's internal world or internal dialogue about themselves and how they consume or how they participate in the beauty industry. Yeah, I think everything's relevant though. Like even if you're making makeup or jewellery, if your message gives somebody something that makes them feel better or makes them feel less alone and it's genuine, like obviously I'm not going to go speak about things that I can't really relate to personally, but I think we always talk about issues that affect 
the countries of the, all the team members we work with or our, our artisans, you know, like in the... And that's what I mean. Yours has been such a direct experience that it's... I want to hear your opinion and your thoughts on it because it feels true. It feels mm. firsthand. Well, I think if it's genuine, people know that and you need to treat your audience like they're smart human beings. Mm. Like I think the problem with a lot of brands is that they... Um, I think they try and create this like elitist sort of lofty... Um, almost like you have to, you feel like you have to be like a member to be in with them. But I, that's the sort of the opposite of what we want to do. We want to make everyone feel welcome, which is why when people are like, what's your target audience? We're like, no, we don't have a target audience. We just, you know, we want to just, if people like it, they can buy it. But I don't want to tell people they have to be like, tick a few boxes to be part of like the cult. Um, so it's like, yeah, I think if it's genuine, the storytelling is appropriate. If Kellogg's um, are doing like voting stuff. I mean, I don't know. I don't really know enough about it to comment, but I think... It was just a parody, but Oh, uh, yeah. was it the New York, the New Yorker mm. sketches it on Instagram? It's a whole series. There's many though. Yeah. Um, I feel like sometimes people have... Well, a lot of brands, I think, have sort of cottoned on to the fact that you now sort of need to have a message. So they're like, what is our message? And then they're just like, well, what are other brands messaging? Whereas in our case, I feel like because our what we're messaging comes directly from us and our team members. It, it is just like an open discussion and mm. that's why I've never had any negative feedback. Like I post stuff about Palestine and Syria and Afghanistan. I've never had maybe just a few little like, why are you political? You're a jewellery brand. But I'm like, whatever. Um, but maybe three comments in like 15 or 12 years, like of people saying shut up about politics. So I think, yeah, as long as people feel that it comes from a good place and it's genuine. Totally. They, they get on board. Yeah. What are we up to? Um, I think, well, we kind of just, my whole thing is like the role of brands and then I guess my question would be like, what role do you expect of your customer or how do you want them to play a part in the evolution of CB? I have a more pointed question. It's do you think um, or do you want CB to live on without you? Would you hand the design ropes over to someone else? Ooh. Have you thought that far? Just like shivering. <laughs> um, design, I don't know. Like at this point, I'm 34. I've got a lot of energy. But um, clearly, like I gave over creative direction to wonderful Karim at the back, who's going to be really want to kill me. Um, Karim obviously like ha came on board not with a specific like um, goal to be creative director, but then, oh, sorry, artistic director. Um, art director is the English term. Um, but then obviously I saw his talents and um, made him um, the art director. So I feel like, yes, I'm able to like delegate, has to feel extremely right. Like I'm not just gonna sort of, you know, hand it over and be like, oh, I'm relieved. I don't have to do that anymore. Like has to feel really good. Um, but I think in terms of it going on, if Cleopatra's wing were to continue past my demise, I feel like I would want it to be because the brand is sort of a, a template of a, a good example, not because I'm attached to the, to the brand doing well, because like I'm not going to care if I'm dead or n retired or whatever. But I think it's, it's about the brand setting up a good template of an example of a business regardless of the product. And then it's serving like more than more people than just me so it would have to be something that could 
um, serve as a, yeah, as a template of a brand. And I like, literally, I can't do the best job of this. Everyone else can help me make it a better brand and more relevant and um, like better in all ways. So I think like if someone can do a better job than me, like literally knock yourself out. But I think at this point I can see it going on for a long time. I can see it being my like life, lifelong career and it will sort of continue to evolve and um, we'll get more team members and I'll probably, my role will probably change, but obviously I'm not talking in the next five to 10 years, but I can definitely see it growing. I can see it being like a structure that supports a lot of people because ultimately that's my main goal. Like I want it to facilitate a lifestyle and like, um, like a harbour for people that work with me because I think the world is so tough <laughs> um, and I don't think we need to go to work and feel that kind of cutthroat tough environment. So like I want the brand to like house this um, really, really healthy culture that sort of we laugh at CB because a lot of um, the members, the, sort of the more recent staff members have come from one particular group I'm not going to name. And we we name, we, we've called it like rehab because they're sort of, they've come to CB and they're kind of like terrified almost. And I'm just like, what are you terrified about? Like, this is, we're all friends. Like, and then, yeah, they're sort of unpacking those. Um, <laughs> like their previous employments. Yes, like, and I'm just like, are you okay? It's like, I made a mistake. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, it's fine. Like, we're all, I make mistakes all the time. But it's just like that whole culture, like people get traumatised at work. And I'm like, come to CB, you'll have a great time. We'll drink matcha together and yeah, go bowling. But like, it's, it's just... <laughs> It's just, I think, yeah, that's my main goal. It's like, I don't really care if we become a multi-billion dollar business or not. If we do, amazing. Everyone can buy a mansion on the Mediterranean coast. But if we don't, and we're all on salaries enough to sustain ourselves and have a good time, I feel like that's way more important to me. So, yeah, it may keep going. Um, who knows? Because all we hear in the news these days is the banks are collapsing. So I don't know what that means. But I think, yeah, I would love to see keep going and I would love to see it like supporting people come up as I get old and irrelevant um I would like yeah I'd like the brand to keep supporting people it's just it's that's why I love talking to you because we we come at this or from business or brand from kind of really different places and my experience in the beauty industry there was like this direct path to exit in terms of you build it up to this revenue you will sell out to one of the heritage companies for a multiple and this is what you have to do to get there and I could I could see it I can still see the steps I know how to go about that I know at what point I have to sell my soul um, and that's again been the point of contention for me whether I want to follow that or not and you sort of have been on the other side where you don't have that path to exit or that plan of you're like, I want to sell out to this. It's really driven first and foremost by that desire to create and to connect with people and to fulfill like your desires and then your team's desires. And I love that. And I have a a big element of that in fluff too, but in a different way and not solely in the way that you do. And that's what I love. Like we have different businesses and they both can exist in the world. And for me, I think when I think about fluff, it is one of, um, as I said at the start, one of many things that I have done and that I hope to do. And I recognise the point which I probably would step back and that it will be when fluff um, reaches, you know, a certain amount of SKUs or when fluff is in a certain amount of retailers because I almost know that my job will be done and I know that I'm this creative founder that is 
more in that initial stage. I'm not as much in the maintaining scaling. It's just not me. Like I thrive on that first sort of intimate connection in building communities and I will happily move on to something um, that requires my attention in that capacity when it's required. And I also think or now that at some point you kind of do age out as a founder potentially and that again is where you have to rely on younger staff to come in and keep refreshing the brand and keep refreshing your connections with audiences and that excites me and that's where it's like I would love to hand over it and it's it's a, one of the things I look at some of these legacy brands too. At some point, they have had to hand it over um, and it becomes a different iteration and it's not necessarily a bad thing to say, Bobby Brown isn't what it used to be or Estee Lauder isn't what it used to be. Well, of course it isn't. It's like it's run by different people with different ideas, with different views of the world. The world is in a completely different place and perhaps we just need to embrace that That evolution and that change as opposed to trying to fight it or at least that's in my case whereas then you have those some brands that I think have been so steadfast and stay true to what they're about and that's what we love that can also work they both can work and that's what's really interesting for my personality that can't work but that's because I just like to go with it and see what's going to happen and then take the next sort of intuitive step with obviously um, the guidance of the whole team but yeah, I think it's um, it's hard because sometimes you've kind of you realise how much you've been indoctrinated by society to think a certain way, and then you're like, that doesn't sit with me. So I think for me, my like balancing all facets of my life equally, um, and making sure that I feel f- fulfilled personally and like relationally at work as well is just as important for me as selling however many pieces of jewellery a day like obviously I need to pay my bills so like don't get me wrong I follow the stats but like you know I'm not like um focused more on that side of my brain than the other side I'd say yes and so what do you feel like you're sort of where you're at right now because it could change but is your definition of success personally and then professionally with CB I think that kind of merge because of the fact that it's my company that I started in a really personal way. Um, I would say, like, I actually went to Eckhart Tolle last Sunday with my mum and um, he talks about the, like, the life axis, the horizontal and the vertical axis and, like, the meeting point. But he talks about the horizontal axis as being, like, the more sort of nuts and bolts, your thinking mind, um, your not present mind, so, like, the planning mind, the the mind that creates narratives about situations that aren't true. So, like, that's kind of... And as I was listening to him speak, I was thinking, well, that's kind of, like, the business mind where you're like, okay, I've got to pay this bill and, like, need to look at my ROAS on um, marketing ads and stuff. And then you've got the vertical mind, which he said is the deeper version of you, which is your spiritual connection to the world and, like, your daily presence. Um, And I was like, well, that's kind of, like, your intuition and your creativity within the brand. So you've got have an equal balance because I think it's so easy to get like you know I'm um, like imbalanced in when you're running a business and be so focused on like the nuts and bolts and like hold on to them really tight but I feel like every time I've done the opposite I mean like okay out into the wild and like let let the team like sort of manage stuff and me like micromanage less not that I micromanage but you know what I mean like watch over everything I'm like I don't micromanage do I to my team <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, so I think it's important to, like, have that nice balance because you sort of can 
I don't think you can like um, choose what you numb. Like if you numb your creativity, you're kind of numbing a lot of different emotions at the same time, including your um, intuition, um, compassion. So you can kind of just get into this really hardened version of yourself, which is like numbers, like, you know, customers and all this stuff. And then when you like really soften into your intuition and like see everyone who works around you as a human with their own struggles, you have, you maintain that vertical balance a lot more. So the reason I went into the vertical horizontal axis analogy was because I think that for me is like my goal in my personal life and my business life where I see this axis that I aspire to. So, um, you know, not working insane hours like I did up until honestly, like a few months ago when I had more staff. Um, but also just like realizing that like we're always gonna have problems in business. Like it's always, there's always gonna be someone that's annoying on emails and like you're always gonna be like, can we afford this? There's always gonna be something that your team is like, oh, we've got to do this as well. And you're like, oh my God, okay, we've also got to do that, okay. And then at the same time, I'm thinking about the next collection and like, you know, so I think it's just always about balance at this point. Yeah, I guess whether you're a startup or a, unicorn everyone has problems they're just different sizes um and you either are experiencing the problem on your own or with a huge team and I think I often or one of the things we talk about is just like what can wait and for me I'm always like it's makeup at the end of the day and it's jewelry at the end of the day yeah, everyone's beautiful fine. jewelry great makeup love my brand proud of it but it at the end of the day is just something it's not everything and that's something I have to remind myself and that I try and remind our audience and our customers too um and because you have an obligation to each other but it's also mm. realizing that there, there are humans behind these brands like annual leave I've just discovered it and I was like oh my god I survived like I did two weeks last year and I was like my team were like are you gonna be able to do this and I was like yeah just watch me and then I went fully offline and they were almost like concerned, I think, because they've never seen me offline for two weeks. <laughs> but yeah, that's like one of the things, you know, the balance and letting go of control and letting go of the reins and everything's going to be fine. And like the team, your team, you've hired them for a reason. So like let them, let them do it because they're yeah. great at it. Do you think this might be then part of your legacy that you're trying to leave like a different mode or way of working or creating a yeah. brand? I want to like break down that sort of strange hierarchy within a company, even like me as, I don't even like using the word boss, like I feel uncomfortable saying it, but as the boss, um, I don't like to have that sort of hierarchy where I'm this like sort of scary figure and I don't want anyone who works with me to feel as though they're defined by their role either. So I think I want, yeah, I want Cleopatra's Wing to always be a, like a, a place of comfort for whoever comes in, whether or not you're um, a team member or a customer. Like we really like to be democratic. Um, we don't want to be unaccessible. Like I want people to come in and feel welcomed regardless of where they've come from, how much money they have, how they're dressed. Um, and I think our team reflects that because we're all extremely different. Everyone dresses really different. Everyone has different interests um, and we have a really good time. So it's kind of like our own mini little sort of version of how I would love the world to be one day. Yeah. Um, do you have any more little points in your scribbles? Otherwise, I feel like we can... You can ask me questions or we can ask the audience questions. Hmm. I always say? feel like the more talks that I do, the more I'm like, 
has everyone heard this before? Or like, what is the burning questions that people want to know? And because they could be anywhere, they could have an established business, they could be thinking about starting one. I always say that like my advice to people wanting to start a business is don't. Um, but then I preface it with being like, this is what I've learned and this is how I would go about it. Um, and there's just trade-offs, right? There's working for someone else, which can be incredibly rewarding. And then there's working for yourself, which can be incredibly rewarding. And both can be super challenging and frustrating. So that's where I'd bring you back to this access that you talk about, um, which I want to look into more too, because you can find that both working for someone or for yourself. And once again, we've like glamorized on social media, starting your own business, whereas you can provide so much value and actually create impact working for someone else. And sometimes I wish more people would actually consider that as opposed to starting your own thing, being like, is there a business that exists out there that I can actually help and scale? Because the more businesses that we create, the actual, the more we pull away from the potential or the growth of each one because we're just diluting the pool. Yeah, and I feel like, we, you know, small brands like us, we can like co-create. Like I don't really believe that much in competition. Like I think the more people that love beautifully crafted jewellery that's um, celebrating artisanal traditions, the more people will love it and therefore all the brands that are already doing that well can thrive so I feel like you know even us the way we talk about our the values of our brands like I don't think that they're too far away from each other so in that we've already got true workplaces of um, people and staff and regular people like you and I who feel good about going to work every day and then if they're, they're if that multiplied then the amount of people going to work feeling good about what they do would multiply and I just think everyone would be happier it feels like we should dance around a campfire, <laughs> but, but I kind of think we should. Yeah. So maybe it's time to ask you guys to ask questions if you've got any, and no pressure. Here, I'm going to give you... Do we give them the mic? Oh, no, please don't do that. OK. No, I think we need to for the... Because Zoltan, our recorder, um, podcast engineer, is okay. going to make sure it's... Is, all right. Okay, my question is for Erica because you asked the question but you didn't answer the question. Um, about legacy brands, you mentioned do you think legacy brands can be around today and can someone build one, for example, Coca-Cola or Glossier? Um, you didn't answer the question. So when I thought about that, I was <laughs> like, oh, personally, I'm not really too sure if someone would be able to rebuild something like Coca-Cola today, but I wanted mm. to ask what your opinion was. Why do you think they couldn't? Because I think it comes down to messaging. Like your point to me personally was... Chanel and Cartier and all these really cool brands, like you said, no one actually knows anything about their processes and what they really stand for, but no. the noise and the money and the untouchability almost from that brand, mm. people, I don't think people really want that anymore and they don't expect that anymore. They expect something different from a brand and they want more connection and they want transparency. So... Yeah, to reverse engineer, I don't know if you could really build something like Coca-Cola today, but I wanted to know Erica's thoughts because you asked the question. Yes, and I think I was trying to get at that I also don't know if it's possible. I don't have a straightforward answer. I think it would be really cool if someone did build something that um, was big enough and strong enough, but with probably more values than 
some of the heritage brands that we see today. Um, but I also recognise how challenging it is because the barriers to entry to start a brand are so low. Um, you can make a Shopify account and you can create an Instagram account and you can get a product on Alibaba or cook it in your kitchen and all of a sudden you're marketing it to millions of people literally overnight. But the idea of scaling that brand and globally is a lot more difficult. Um, I think a really good podcast that is very long but super interesting is called Acquired and it they did one recently on LVMH and about that group and structure and then there's also another podcast which talks about industry wars so it like um, tells a story of Estee Lauder versus L'Oreal. That's super interesting if you want to get into how some of those companies started. Um, again, like the passion that they sort of had in the beginning, the no business plan just with a incredibly um, passionate founder and then how it grew into something bigger than they were and now how these companies just have to keep servicing it. So to kind of come full circle, yeah, I don't know if legacy brands can continue. I think actually only if they do, it probably will be in the luxury space more than anything. And that's what this acquired podcast touches on. Luxury is something that seems to have withstood appeal over time. They talk about like designer handbags or shoes in that because they are products that can be passed down. It's something that everyone aspires to and can save up to over time. Um, so I think jewelry has a lot of potential there. I think that um, more in leather goods as opposed to fashion. Yeah, will we have another Dior or Chanel? I'm not sure. Um, and in beauty, I don't mind saying that I think the answer is no. Like we look at Estee Lauder and we look at L'Oreal and we see them buying brands because they can't create another one themselves. And again, with Fluff, I think that it has a chance to be around maybe for 10 years or maybe 15 years. But I Do just you mean think without like investment or being bought out by a really big company? No, in terms of relevance. Okay. Um, I just think that consumers are moving so quickly and what we want from a brand can change and just – like a relationship like I would I would love if um in 20 years time someone is giving their daughter a fluff compact and saying I had this when I was young and you can still use it that would be amazing but we sort of don't see that even just by sheer like frequency of usage or the fact that makeup is so much more disposable than say a luxury good so yeah I think legacy brands are sort of really in question um but we might see these um, parent brand, these structures. So maybe one day Glossier will buy other indie beauty brands and so Glossier will stay around for a long time. Or maybe CB will start buying off little indie jewellery brands. Who knows? <laughs> well, that I actually wanted to ask you, so if you were approached by a bigger, like LVMH, that's just a, the, since we're talking about it, um, but you didn't align necessarily with their value system, but it meant that they would put the message of fluff further out into the world. Would you do that? So this is, I have this sort of, these struggling, these questions come up for me a lot, whether it is, would we partner with a 
bigger group. Um, we have discussions with potential investors a fair bit um, or on a smaller like day-to-day -day scale, it's like, would I partner with an influencer to put our product out there? And it is the things that I lose sleep over. Um, I might not align over certain values, but I think what I have been figuring out over the years is... Um, Again, I say like, how much am I willing to sell my soul or which values are non-negotiable and which might I actually flex on? Because whilst an influencer in the beauty space might not be directly aligned with the values of fluff or how we present ourselves, if I can reach their community or their audience, which could be hundreds of thousands or millions of people who need our message, like why would I not do that? It was actually in disservice to fluff to not put it out there. But again, we sort of have this list of like, we're willing to do this, but then we're not willing to do that. Um, you know, I feel so fortunate over the last 10 years, the different groups that I have been able to meet through fluff and my previous brand, I've sat in the boardrooms with Estee Lauder and talked to them and I felt really passionate about what they were creating. But then I could also look at some of the brands that they house and be like, I'm totally not into that either. But then at some point you have to realise that these, again, are businesses that are bigger than just that original vision and founder. And so there are compromises and trade-offs. And I know that at some point we might have to make that. And again, it might be fair enough for me to be like, you know what, I created Fluff and for a good 15 years it was doing something beautiful. And then I handed it off and it went off on its own way. Mm. And then consumers, like trusting them to be smart enough to be like, cool, Fluff was good for that time and I'm going to now go somewhere else. I think that's, it's just reasonable. Ideally, people would be there forever, but I can't control that. Yeah, it's like we got approached by Amazon to oh, sell. great alignment. <laughs> I know. We were, I thought, well, number one, I thought it was a spam email to start with. But then um, we just decided as a, as a team that it just didn't align. So that's a good example of like, you know, obviously attractive. It's like how many pieces could we sell on Amazon? But it just didn't sit with us. So... And again, it just it. comes down to like, do you need to grow it that quickly? Do you need to be in front of that many people? I think you guys have a great business model. It's growing in its own way. Your your vision wasn't to sell it in five years and just not create, not work. So, But there are some people whose vision is to create a company that they sell to Amazon within three years. And Yeah. When I say Amazon approached us, it was to sell on their platform. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Do you, did that answer your question? Cool. Any more questions? Okay. Hi. Um, we were just talking about how in this time anyone can basically start a brand and obviously you guys have started a brand that's very authentic to yourself. But my question is in the timeline from when you started to now when you had that emotion of fear and if you let, if you let that emotion kind of drive the passion forward so you're feeling the fear and you're letting it kind of go through your work or did you try and kind of redirect the energy and say, you know, keep confident or um, and build in that way or did you let the fear kind of drive it forward? It's kind of a big question or... No, that's a nice question actually. Um, I sometimes the thing that scared me was that I didn't feel necessarily fearful. So I thought... I think Liv and I get along because we have an appetite for risk. Yeah, I like taking risks. So I sort of went to Istanbul and I was kind of thriving off that. Um, it was like an effervescence that I felt. Like, you know, when you put vitamin C in water and it 
does that bubbling. That was kind of my driving force. But it didn't. It wasn't like a fear-based fear. I don't know. I just think I was excited at the perspective of the perspective of doing something really new in a foreign country. The times where I felt fear are more like because I feel like a mum and I'm providing for a team. So I'm always just like when I think about financial decisions. It's like I don't think about my own salary. I really just think about the team and like making sure that the ship keeps sailing. So I would say that the the small moments of fear is more when you know we're going through like socially and um, sort of more collectively big shifts. Like when COVID started, everyone was like, "Oh, goodbye, small businesses," and I was like, "Oh my god." Um, so those are the moments when I felt like little, you know, for a couple of days maybe some fear because I just have an insane sense of responsibility, like. I always want to make sure that my team is fine. Um, but I would say in terms of my own journey, it wasn't something that I felt, but I sometimes had to sort of almost give myself a limit because I'm so turbo in terms of like the way I plan ahead and like all the projects I've got going on at the same time. So I get really excited and then you know, it's sort of, <laughs> I get to the point where I'm like, okay, this is really not feasible. Like you've got 20 things going on. Um, so I think my fuel has always been that like effervescence in my stomach almost like just of excitement and like ex exploration and like meeting the meeting the um, artisans in the Grand Bazaar and all of those things like they're the things that have given me my my drive but I don't think do you I don't think you feel fear a lot either I think we're good at putting things into perspective I think being a, a founder like in my opinion requires so much self-awareness and self-reflection and you, if you can, yeah, look at yourself and ask yourself these questions um, and understand whether you have an appetite for risk or not, that should guide you as to whether you do your own thing. Because if you know yourself that you are stressed easily or that you are fearful, but fearful to the point where it will like cripple you or you can't make decisions, it's like that potentially isn't the right pathway for you. Fear can drive us forward. I think it can be super exciting and it's, you know, it's an amazing journey to go into the unknown. But it's also really empowering to recognise if that's just not what you want to do. And I love uh, Katia who worked for me for several years I loved, she always just said, I could never do what you do. And she just knew that in her heart. She's like, for every day or that I think I want to start a business, she goes, I have the reality check that I never actually would. And so again, we, I think, have a lot of pressure and we feel like maybe we should and we're just scared, but perhaps your fear is a good thing. Maybe it's telling you that this wouldn't be the best decision for you. Um, so I just think it's about really looking at your life and how you see yourself and whether you feel equipped to do something on your own because fear will, it's forever present when you're a founder and risk is forever present and there is a lot of stress involved and so it's like your tolerance level for stress and I have learned that I am super tolerant of stress. Mm, me too. I have a resilience <laughs> which I just, yeah. and I know where it came from and I've done a lot of like thinking about where that came from. I want to ask you where it came from. <laughs> We but don't need to get into years of therapy, but it's yeah, that's a like, thing. I know. Resilience can come from like tough times, right? And yeah. so it can serve you um, at a certain point in your career. Um, but for some people, it's like if it's not there, that's also okay. Mm. I think that was really good advice because I think like we've sort of told that everyone can start a business and it'll be amazing. But like sometimes you just don't need to and there are so many people out there like us looking for great people, you know, 
one of the reasons why fluff is still around after five years is because I have just stuck around and I know that many people wouldn't have and there are times where I probably shouldn't have too and I traded off a lot to still be here and that's not me kind of it's just the fact kind of thing that you trade off everything yeah exactly any more questions what do you mean by trade-off (laughs) So what do I mean by trade-off? I think everything in life is a trade-off, really. You, um, if you're a solo founder, you get to make every decision on your own, but you have no one to bounce ideas off of. If or like if everything goes like pear-shaped, it's on you, exactly. As well, so like you can't share the responsibility. If you're a co-founder, you get to celebrate and commiserate with your co-founders, but then you have to argue over making decisions, right? So again, I think it's that self-awareness to be like, what am I willing to trade off? If you're a founder, you potentially get to build a company that could be worth a lot of money one day, but you would potentially sacrifice so many hours to do so, or your health, or your happiness, or your time with your family. If you work nine to five for someone else, you might never get to explore your creative side, or you might not get to see the potential salary or revenue that building a company with no cap on salary could give you. So that's where I'm like, everything sort of is a trade-off. Not one direction is right or wrong, but it's about you really knowing yourself to be like, what am I drawn to? And what's going to be the trade-off of choosing that path? And for me, I am constantly kind of reflecting on that and asking myself like, cool, I'm going to make this decision. What's a trade-off for it? Am I happy with that? What's a regret that I can live with? What's a regret that I'm not going to be able to live with? And that really helps me make decisions. I often ask myself what like eight-year-old Olivia would do. Because I feel like we grow up and we're like, you know, adult Olivia, but actually inside of me is eight-year-old Olivia. So I'm like, would she be proud of this decision? Like, or have I been completely moulded and shaped by society to go down a certain path? So I think often I try and check in with myself in that way to like, let my, God, I sound like Oprah, (laughs) let my inner child guide me. But it is, I think it's important to like, go back to your roots. And, you know, even when I was overseas and like making decisions on my own, away from my family and, like, my close friends who'd known me for a long time, I would often, like, be like, okay, what would Erica say or what would Lissy say or what would Emily say or, like, mum and dad or my brother? So, And that would be my sort of point of reference. So I think it's nice to remind yourself of your essence in amongst this, like, mad world we live in. Yes. Yeah. Any more questions? You have another one? Sure. <laughs> um, mm. I'm in awe of how you... I guess, almost not decided to stay on this path, but I mean, like, for example, like in comparison, you're like, you know, fluff is what I'm doing now. Perhaps there's going to be other things, but in, like on the contrast, you're like for the long haul for this brand and business. And I'm curious to know, like, what's your purpose? Because I feel like I probably resonate more with the, you know, chopping and changing. Short, and short term. Short term goals. Um, or probably not like necessarily short term, but maybe not like... I see myself doing this forever. Like, that's a big decision to make. Um, yeah, what's my purpose? Wowie. <laughs> um, do you mean, like, my personal yeah. value? Sort of, I would say, like, as long as I'm feeling curious, um, a sense of community and, like, compassionate, all C words, I feel like that's um, sort of the foundation of what I want to be feeling on a daily basis. So whether or not... I'm, you know, working with artisans, micromanaging them on WhatsApp or, like, speaking with my team 
um, in person or speaking with a customer or making a like a custom order in solid gold, I think those are the sort of, I want to be feeling good every day. Like not every day, that's ridiculous. But you know what I mean? Like most of the time I want to be feeling really good. Um, my purpose is honestly like not super long term, but I just feel a sense of groundedness in the project that I know that it will just keep going. So I would say that longevity isn't the purpose, but it's just sort of um, the creation of like a almost like a, a, a just a, a, a structure that houses um, the three um, virtues, values that I mentioned before, because I think um, we spend so much time at work and we don't really think about how much time we spend at work, but our co-workers are just like, they become family. So yeah, you need, you need to feel good. And I think as long as I feel good, then I can keep going. Yeah. I actually think that your and my, and potentially your purpose also is one in the same. To feel good. Or might I suggest that it's to create mm. and... Olivia is focused on creating through one medium right now, but I am just drawn to creation across so many different things and I'm really fueled by it. And for many reasons, it's like I can manage sort of multiple um, tasks where I love, I get more energy putting it in like lots of different things at once. I can't say no to stuff. I've actually been learning to like try to say no to things and focus, um, but like lives creating daily through whether it's the literal jewellery or whether it's creating stories, creating connections with her customers, with her staff, with her store. You're doing the same with your brands. I am as well. It doesn't matter if it's sort of one or if it changes. Um, and we can get really fixed on like, fuck, what's my purpose? It has to be defined by this one thing. But I really zoomed out and was like, mine is broader. It's just to create. And so long as I'm doing that, I feel so fulfilled. And that can be fluff. That can be writing a kid's book. That can be, I made a cafe once. That was the worst decision of my life but I just did it and it fulfilled that desire of creating and I realised that's what I want to do. Hi. Um, this was someone's question actually who's tuning in on the live feed. Oh, amazing. So they, their question was, how about selling stuff for retailers like Sephora? I guess this is for Erica. Is this something you would think about? Yes. So I also wrote down this other quote which I think is super relevant for um, brands at the moment because if anyone's either working for a company or owns one, um, it said basically like the boom of performance marketing has bust in many ways and that's really making investors quite uncomfortable because there was this obviously boom sort of 2021 where people just throwing money at D2C brands and it was quite cheap to acquire a customer. Now we're really feeling that pinch. So from the investor discussion, um, it's really moved away from D2C brands and they're relying on retail and these partnerships. Um, but getting retail velocity requires funding. So it's this sort of like really tricky equation. Um, for me with Fluff, yeah, once again, I wanted to start as a D2C brand. I was like, I wanna keep all the margins in ourselves. I wanna control the customer experience. I don't need Sephora. I don't need Mecca. It's not right for us. Um, 
our even business model wasn't built for retail originally when we had one product. Our costs were so high because of the quality of the product that we were never going to be able to survive a 60 to 70% margin of a retailer. Now that we've built out our refill model, it's like we potentially could. And this is again where I come back to this question of like, am I doing a disservice to fluff by withholding it from retailers? And people love to shop and touch and feel, um, especially with makeup. And you might be able to look at a photo or a video of the fluff compact and it looks really shiny, but until you hold it and feel the weight and feel the touch of the metal, like that's another experience and something that I have to put out there into the retail world. So, you know, we've had to do this work over the last couple of years to think about how we can change the business model, change the cost of the product so it can survive in retail and then also get the business model to a point where we can fund those orders. Um, and that's been a journey. But yeah, I love the idea now of partnering with retailers or putting fluff out there in a cool and interesting way. I know that retailers also are looking to partner with brands who are doing things differently because the retail space is experiencing its own lulls. Um, and I think that's really exciting. And it's just about how we do it and how we approach it. I can't really speak to that because it's about Sephora and makeup. Oh, it could be any retailers for you, though. Um, well, I guess, yeah, we do get approached by a lot of um, brands that we would not consider that we align with um, for many reasons that I won't get into. But it's more just about what feels right, I think. And we already – we don't want to jeopardise the quality of our um, production because we do it all in-house, so to speak. Like, we work with small – studios around the world and we know all the artisans personally so to get to a point of like to scale in a way that would be substantial we would need to really sort of look at that because as is like we're doing our you know small runs of production and it's definitely profitable of course we wouldn't still be here but if we were to get to a point where we're selling like hundreds of SKUs of the same SKU to retailers we would need um to work out how we could do that and keep the quality the same because I'm not prepared to mm. jeopardise the quality um, by, like, any stretch of the imagination, not even by 1%. So we're always trying to look at making the quality better and challenging ourselves. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so it would need to be... It would need to align, but it would also need to align with our growth strategy, which is, I would say, slow and steady because I just don't want to put too much stress on the structure, the infrastructure of the company. Yeah. And that's why I love chatting to live because our business models in a way are so different. I could press a button tomorrow and order 20,000 units of the same compact and ensure that that quality is there. I don't know if that is replicable. 20,000? Yeah, of uh. one skew, you know. And But that's exciting because whereas she doesn't have that dilemma to deal with I don't have some of the dilemmas she has but we can it's so interesting to sort of hear what we're both experiencing and working through as a brand mm. yeah a lot of parallels still any more questions this is half a question half a comment um because around this whole thing of legacy a lot of it is speaking about uh, product. What are, I, as someone who is in the very infancy stages of a service, purely service-based business, I struggle to translate this idea of legacy to something that is purely service because if I, like, as a practitioner of something, it's me and what I offer a client one-on-one -on -one and how does that 
How does the idea of legacy go or last beyond me? Can it and should it? And so I just wondered if you had thoughts around what that, what that crossover might be. I want to look up like the, the root of the word um, mm -hmm. legacy to get a good understanding. But I feel like if it leaves a lasting impression on somebody and they take that with them, that's a legacy. Totally. I think a legacy the is how you make people feel and how they will talk about you after a session or after you have gone. And I think that you can totally create it with a service because the impact that you can have on someone in an hour in the time that you spend with them or the impact that someone wearing one of Liv's pieces or the impact of someone wearing fluff every day that carries through to their interactions with people, how they carry themselves, how they see themselves. So it's that legacy, that way of like being or that way of um, communicating or expressing themselves, no matter your service. Agree. I think I'm thinking once I'm gone, how do I pass that on? Something that, that is how I, you know, how you help somebody in the moment in an interaction. Yeah, well, I mean, you would hope that that impact that you have made, they will carry through to conversations if they leave feeling different about themselves and then they present or talk to people differently, like the legacy's there. It's the impact that we have in that moment that just carries through to interactions. But then if you feel like you've created something that can be handed down, it's like, who could you pass your business on to? Is there someone that you can train that can carry it forward? I think that's another way to look at it. But yeah, like the concept I mentioned before of like a template, like you're creating your own template that people can like adopt. And I think if you create something that's, um, um, what's the word, that has a lasting impact, then you don't really need to worry about what it will do after you're gone. Because I think after you're gone, it's so bleak, but you know what I mean? Um, I feel like you know, if someone talks about what you've done, just like when you have a conversation with someone you meet once overseas in a random serendipitous way and you remember that forever, I think it's the same with any kind of business encounter. Like it doesn't, it doesn't like change because we're in a professional business setting. I think the, the way we are as humans is to remember those moments and that also translates into the business world. I think you're also contributing to a category or a movement and I think you shouldn't take that for granted in a way that um, you participating in your field um, as a practitioner means that more people are hearing about that and more people are spreading the word and so that can be your legacy. Yeah. Sort of you're creating a louder voice in that mm. world. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. I'll try to keep this succinct. Um, I guess it's sort of on the themes of trade-offs, compromises, values. Um, I work for a pretty massive brand where I make decisions, um, which is can be really tricky, but I guess I have the relief and luxury that I get to remind myself that this brand is not an extension of me or my arm, and that can be really freeing at times. Obviously, I still want to make the right decision for partly myself and the customer. I'd imagine as a founder, you obviously do have that feeling that this brand is an extension of you. Um, and I'm sure your personal values align with a lot of your brand ones. But when that happens or when it's a tricky decision, whether you're deciding on partnering with a retailer or otherwise, what does that look like? And I guess, what are you faced with? Um, I really try to, I'm like, I want to give you a specific example so that it feels tangible. Um, maybe working with influencers is one because I was um, very publicly um, 
adamant that I would never work with influencers after leaving my first beauty brand and that I thought that they were one of the world's biggest problems. Um, I've since changed my tune and I've never doubted that people of influence are important. I had a real problem with where, with um, the magnitude of influence and individuals' responsibility with their influence. And I didn't articulate that properly when I started Fluff. So for me, my journey has been about, cool, these people are going to help us spread the word about Fluff. Um, how do I understand where they're coming from? Their journey is so different to mine. How can they help me put my message out there? How could working with us potentially inform or change their decision or how they think about stuff? It might not change overnight, but it could change over time. So that's been a big thing where we sit down and we're sort of like influencers are part and parcel of this sort of D to C game um, if we are wanting to scale at a certain pace. So if we're going to work with them, we sort of have our checklist. Again, I say it's just like what is a non-negotiable for us? What do we feel like is a, a flex that we're willing to make? Um, and it's always we sort of uh, a really nice thing that a friend said to me was like, how would you write the like PR crisis management for this? If it went pear-shaped, what would your response be? Could you justify it to yourself first so that then you could justify it to someone else? Because you might experience backlash. There might be people that are offended and it's like if you can – um, preempt that or think about where it could go and how you would respond and how you would deal with it in a human way, then that's how I feel comfortable making some of those decisions and compromises or trade-offs. Yeah, I think for me, it's always just coming back to the, like the compass and reminding ourselves, because we often have like emails coming to us where there's like some sparkly offer and it's always like too good to be true, but you know, you get them and you're like, ooh, and then you sort of sit with it for a bit and then everyone puts their opinion down, like the team, the mini parliament. And then we um, often find that, okay, we've sat on this and I'm probably not going to do it. But also then we've had, we've had, we've been surprised in the, the opposite sense where we've sort of teamed with people that we didn't expect that we would. Um, and it's um, proven to be you know, a really good thing to do for various reasons. But I think, yeah, I think it's just all about gut and, like, going back to, like, you know, what's important to the brand and also, like, the people who work inside the brand. Like, it's not just about the brand as a shell projecting an image, but, like, everyone who works there, I want everyone to feel good about the decisions we make. So we take all of it pretty seriously, mm -hmm. I think. It kind of goes full circle for me to your question about fear, where I think it's so important to talk about your fears in business and that takes a lot of courage to say to your co-workers whether they are working under you or whether they're working above you like hey I'm really scared about doing this partnership with this influencer because I'm worried that this could happen or that could happen but as soon as you sort of name that fear and put it out there you can start discussing together like oh this is how we would deal with it if that happened or hey that fear is like it's reasonable but you know, that's normal. And then you can make those decisions together where you all feel comfortable going in and being like, yep, we looked at how this could pan out. We made the decision together. It could stuff up, but we can wear that. Yeah. I think also like as a founder, probably in the early years, I would have thought, um, you know, I'm going to just keep this problem to myself. But now I'm just like, I tell my team, like, I'm anxious for this reason. And then, you know, often because they're not as emotionally invested in like 
certain parts of the business as me, like the profitability because I'm like I need to keep paying everyone and rent and all the, the sort of overheads. If I'm like, oh, I'm anxious for this reason, then often they'll be like, oh, but this is happening so you don't need to be. And I'm like, oh, okay, I've got more perspective that's taken away that burden of anxiety, if that makes sense. So I think it's all about a level of transparency that keeps everyone on board um, and on the same page, but also not forgetting that you're a human as well and you're allowed to sort of express those fears like you are in any relationship or... You know? Cool. Did that answer your question? Cool. Do we any, have any other final any ones? Any other finals? Another live one? I feel like we're like low battery here. Okay, cool. If anyone wants to get up and get themselves a drink, by the way, like we can do that. Thank you. It says, any suggestions or recommendations of podcasts that are inspiring to you within a business or personal life? Oh, I've got so many. I, I just have to take my some. phone. Am I allowed to take my phone off flight mode? I listen to the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. She's incredible um, on all kinds of topics. Let me go. Yeah, I mentioned Acquired before. They're like long three-hour episodes, but they're really interesting, very smart combos. Um, um, so I listen to the Ottoman History podcast. Um, <laughs> I this is your nerding out. Yeah, this is my nerding out podcast. I'm absolutely obsessed with On Being. Honestly, like I feel like that is um, one of the best podcasts because she really speaks with interesting people who talk about emotions and like sort of um, sort of philosophical subjects but also there's a lot of science-based evidence around it. So I think that's really nice because you feel that um, these topics are being taken seriously from a scientific perspective um i listened to the cleopatra's bling podcast <laughs> um the cut and then i listened to a lot of like newsy ones as well like um the daily i don't know if this is interesting to you guys the guardian podcast but i yeah i really do love oh dear sugars is a really cute one um it's by some american um publishing company and yeah i'm actually going to give you guys a better list that will be in the notes of this mm. podcast. Oh, Esther Perel podcast, I love. The yeah, couple therapy yeah, one is she the does best. couple therapy and then also oh. founder therapy because I and really work, believe like work a, one. a business partnership is sometimes you have to be even more honest than a personal partnership. Definitely. So she's great. How I Built This is like a really nice, I think, entry level in terms of startups and remembering that yeah. these businesses that a unicorn started sometimes with zero dollars, with zero followers, and they built it up um, over a long period of time. So that's always nice to look over. We'll just do a little list of our podcasts and put them on the notes. Cool. Any last questions? No? Fantastic. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Um, yeah. And that's it really. Just Stick we're really around, appreciative. Stick around, talk. Yes. The last of the wine. And yeah, thank you again. For coming. James for a glass of yeah, for thanks, everyone James. having a thanks um, Zoltan wine. behind Just the curtain. Please send us messages on Instagram if you have more questions. I think it's another thing. Liv and I love chatting about what we do. Um, and come visit Liv's shop. We're just we've just we've like semi finished the fit out. Will we be ready next week? No. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be there. Okay, week after next, we're going to do an opening party. You're all invited. It might sprawl out into the street like the last one we did. Um, but you're all invited. So we'll send you all an invite. And thank you for showing up, Liv, and being so honest, especially this time. 
Thank you. I appreciate Hi, Dad. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, everyone, for everyone. coming. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fetcho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I call it journalism without the bullshit. So I get to solely focus on human rights and uh, and just not just tell you um, about the bad stuff that's happening, but talk about the solutions. Until next time, stay curious. <laughs>